that's what I got and I was just trying to work out whether it was some kind of like some kind of <laughs> something that I could then relatively <laughs> turn into. Have you ever shot a bow and arrow? Yes. I don't think I have, so that's mm. pretty cool. I'd love I'd love to have a bow and arrow. Don't know why. Don't want to use it for. Uh just shooting at targets, I guess. Crossbow of some sort, perhaps. Um What was I thinking about crossbows recently? <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of reasons to think about crossbows. They're that pretty was, cool. Yeah. Mm. I, was, I must have been watching something and it clearly functioned as an effective weapon. Have you seen... On that occasion. Uh, have you seen... Um, I'm not going to be able to remember oh, the name it? of it. It's the oh, show it's... about like England and the Dark Ages and it's guy, the guy's name is Utrecht. Utrid? Utrid, son of Utrid. <laughs> I am Utrid, son of Utrid. <laughs> it's a good show. No idea what it's called. One of the few shows produced in the last several years that I have watched. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Forget what it's called. It's like Alfred. King Alfred's in it. Alfred the Great. Oh. It's a good show. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Pretty good show. Um, I've never heard of this. God, what's it called? Um, <sighs> Whatever. Look it up. Good show. Maybe that was why you were thinking of it. Probably not if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I was watching... I've been watching the... Um, the Well, I've watched some of the new episodes of the new series of the adaptation of the movie Snowpiercer that Netflix made. Oh, they made a show? Yeah. Really? I haven't even seen the movie. I know the spoiler, though, which is... Oh, right. There's a polar bear. <laughs> it's a polar bear? There's a damn polar bear driving this train. Um, is it good? Um, I'm enjoying it, yeah. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't... I mean, like, the, the movie's kind of surreal, mm. and, and the TV show has to make... A functioning world to some extent, sure, sure. More so than the than the the movie is compelled mm. to have to. Yeah, um, that's a bit less weird. Is it? There, it's kind of like class politics plays a role, right? In yes. The movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Does it in the show? Yes. Yeah, lovely. Yes. Yeah, they have a revolution. Oh, that's mm. cool. Hopefully abolish, successful. Abolish. Uh, yeah. Well, so far, so far, so far, so <laughs> good. Um, yeah. I've seen yeah. What the revolutionary politics of it? Like? I suppose it's, I suppose it's good. I, I mean, it's 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 fun, right? I sat on a train, right? So like, <laughs> the, the classes are the literal train classes, but also they oh, mi- cool. they mirror onto like wealth mm. in terms of like yeah. who can sure. buy a ticket and sure. what they can pay and kind of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. They have they have a violent revolution. Well, that's good. And overthrow the system. Overthrow the train? Uh, overthrow, <laughs> no, overthrow <laughs> the leadership of the train and uh, attempt Hello. to instill a democratic government. Hmm. And then um, and then automatically have to institute martial law. Oh. <laughs> Such as with all revolutions. Mm. Um, I know you said there was taboo to reference other podcasts, but I'm going to reference all-time classic podcast, Mike Duncan's Revolutions, all-time classic. <laughs> Chapa Chapa. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> exactly. Um uh, and just the general thesis that I feel like he's moving towards, which is that all revolutions ultimately are uh, kind of disasters. And tra- <laughs> Maybe I should say tragedies, right? Um, uh, I still hold out hope that the Russian revolution that he's on now is going to end up well. I don't know. Hopefully we'll see if the working class can pull through. Um, he writes a good story, doesn't he? He weaves, yeah. a, he weaves a good yarn. He weaves a damn where good does, yarn. Where does he get these ideas from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> damn good yarn. Uh, that's what I'll say. Um, what else is new, Dan? How are you? How are things? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. Mm. Um, been back at work this week after being off for a while. Mm. I suppose it's nice to have something to do. Back to being a wage slave. For a little while. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's about it. It's hard work, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Trying to... But I'm, I'm carrying on. 
Carrying on. That's all we can ask for, I think, right now. Um, I, uh, to the royal listener, am reporting from beyond the grave. Uh, because as you know, last episode, Dan, I said that if the weather got worse, I was going to kill myself. Hmm. And the cold is back. The weather is horrible again. So I'm dead. <laughs> I have offed myself, so I am here returning from the grave to bring you this podcast. Uh, um, the I'm rain's glad back. you could join me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. It's time to record. Are we going to do miss an episode? Um, weather sucks again. I, uh, I have noticed. Is it cold? Oh, it's cold. Colder than it was? It's cold, yeah. I mean, it, a week ago, it was like sunny and beautiful. Yeah. Now it's just a... Yeah. It's back. Broad beans, though. Looking great. Still alive. Still, still alive. Yeah, very hardy plant. I'm not saying that a lot. Very impressed. We got given some tomatoes. Oh yeah. So now I've just got to keep those alive. <laughs> They're inside. No. No. <laughs> so well. We'll see. We'll Good see. luck. They're not totally exposed. Yeah. I think I think my tomatoes back home survived a couple frosts. I think, uh, but it would have just been at night. It wouldn't have been during the day or anything. So I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I imagine they don't love it. We'll see. We'll find out. We'll find we'll out. Find out. Yeah. I killed quite a lot of tomatoes last year from overwatering them. So. <laughs> That'll happen. Yeah. Eh, what are you going to do? I have no idea how to grow tomatoes out here. Back home, it's just like, plant it whenever, drop a tomato, it'll grow. We find <laughs> like a thousand tomatoes here. It's like, oh, God, I have no idea. Um, yeah, you were saying there's not really a season for it. It's just all the time. Yeah. Just like it's just, yeah, just put them in. Of tomatoes. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Why not? Uh, make a lot of bruschetta. Like water intensive. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd like to be self sufficient in tomatoes. <laughs> Gonna have to like learn to make my preserves or something. I was gonna say how many tomatoes are you eating? <laughs> Quite a lot, I feel like they're a staple. Mm. I used to hate tomatoes. Still kinda suspicious of them when they're on their own, but it's a good it's a good fruit. I think. I think it's a fruit. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's good. I enjoy it. Um not anywhere near the S tier of my vegetables, though. Um, okay. Potato, of course, S tier. That might be the only S tier one. Broccoli's up there. Broccoli's very, very good. Um, that might be it. I don't know. It's probably like C tier tomatoes. I don't know. B tier, maybe. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I don't eat fresh tomatoes, but like from a tin, mm. they are like the staple of like sure. most cooking. Yeah. And in that sense. Yeah. I suppose they have to count. Although mm. if they're a vegetable, if they're a fruit, rather. <laughs> Who knows? That's true. Knows? I feel. I mean, I feel like you couldn't. You couldn't tier list fruit and put tomatoes near the top. That would be psychopathic. To do that. <laughs> put it above a mango. My goodness. What a world. What a world. What a world. Yeah. <laughs> tune in to episode twenty-one where we rate our vegetables. <laughs> um, yeah. Is that what we're doing now? Uh, what are we doing now? Uh, episode twenty. We did it. We survived. We survived this episode twenty uh, against all the odds. Against, against all the all odds. adversity. Against all, well, I guess actually, technically, I didn't. Um, but here oh. I am. <laughs> here the we weather are. actually got you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything was going to get anybody, either of us in this podcast, it was going to be the weather. Wasn't it? it was absolutely yeah. always going to be the weather. Um, twenty episodes, twenty fun-filled episodes. Uh, you know what, Dan? Let's go. Go ahead and look back on those episodes. Let's go ahead and have another clip show. Uh, yeah, that's right, folks. We've decided we've found any excuse not to have to do any reading. We can promise you that we're reading something really big for next week, though. It's huge. It could be the biggest thing we've ever written. Uh, Dan, what are we not decided? <laughs> um, I think we're slowly coming around to the idea of maybe having some themes, perhaps in the next episodes, some things we can work around. Um, because I think we were doing a little bit of hindsight bias with the last two episodes. Perhaps there were some themes. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it'd be cool. Maybe do a little ecology. There's a little sneak peek for our dear listeners. 
for the next 10, but we'll see. Who knows? That'll be fun. That'll be fun. It's definitely a blind spot of ours yeah. so far. I mean, so we've far. got a lot of blind spots. We've yeah. only done 20 episodes. Yeah. We forgive ourselves. Yeah. Um, we'll be reading John Bellamy Foster's Treatsy on the Broadbean. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it has been, the, I mean, we observed this at episode 10, right? But it has been the case that, like, one thing leads into another and you mm. find something, you, you follow a theme and chase it out kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the same has happened this time. Same has happened this to time. To some extent. To some extent. To an extent. I mean, yeah. again, we're kind of looking back and putting uh, these things on them. God damn it. Oh, here it is. Um, we, do, we are kind of doing a little bit of hindsight bias with maybe connecting these. Maybe not, though. Um, so I'll just go ahead. Oh, God damn it. Where did I write this down? Not there. Um, and let's take a stroll down memory lane. For the last ten weeks. I guess maybe nine weeks. Still. Mm. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! Nine Hasn't weeks. it flown by? It has absolutely <laughs> flown by. It's funny to think that been I was the doing the only thing we've been doing. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, like nine weeks ago, I was probably doing the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well, nine months ago. Nine months ago. My God. Um, so we started Dan episode eleven. I'm just going to rush through them real quick. We did Hillary Putnam, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, on the corroboration of theories. Mm-hmm. I believe that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. Tried to explain the title of the, the name of the podcast. <laughs> attempted to. We'll attempt to again Maybe today. We'll a bit more of that. <laughs> so who knows? Um, uh, not really in chronological order, but kind of in chronological order. We did Cybernetic Revolutionaries, Eden Medina, fantastic. I'm all about uh, Stafford Beer and Chile and Allende and uh, that whole pizzazz. Perhaps, I was going to say Chilean Revolution. You could call it a revolution, I suppose. Would you use that terminology? Um, I mean, they were just elected, I guess. But Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? It was certainly like an effort at a revolutionary change, yeah, I absolutely, think. absolutely, yeah. I think there was certainly motivation behind it, which mm. was um, revolutionary in nature. And there was definitely a counter-revolution. There certainly was a counter-revolution, <laughs> so, indeed. Maybe that's what we should be uh, <laughs> defining uh, revolutions by. Um then we got into People's Republic of Walmart. Um, Lee Phillips and Michael Rosowski, I believe is his name. Something like that. Um, then we hopped on into Reinhard Rupp's German Revolution. It's very, very good. Then we did Classes, Process, and Relationship. Uh, returning guest, Ellen Meekson's Wood. And sprinkled in there, we did uh, chapters three and four from... Uh, Marxism Ed, and politics. Marxism and politics. Ed Miliband. I always, I always get confused on that. Um, One of that bunch. Oh no, we have Ralph Miliband. Yeah. See, jeez, <laughs> not Ed Miliband. Jesus. Um, and then we also started. <laughs> didn't get very far. We're still going on our uh, capital reading uh, thing. Um, and so, wow, what a great nine weeks it's been, Dan. What a lovely nine weeks. Um, I suppose we're going to look back and try and pull out some themes from things that we've perhaps learned. Um, the first thing that stuck out to me, I suppose, was prevalence, at least in those kind of first half of the episodes, about the relationship between, like, science to social, like, um, to our society, I suppose. The relationship that science has to our society, the relationship that science has to Marxism, to social change, but also kind of like technocracy. And um, I know that you were saying about, like, when we want to use science to plan a new society, the relationship between like uh, top-down planning versus bottom-up, and the relationship that um, just working-class people have to scientists, I suppose. Um, if any of you are on Twitter in the past week, uh, what's his name? MC Hammer has been getting into some fights with people on Twitter, which has been very funny, uh, for making the bold claim that science is perhaps socially driven and not as... Um, 
objective as we might think. Uh-huh. So it was kind of the beginning, I suppose, episode 11 with our Hillary Putnam, I suppose. Just ideas. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that we got around to doing that episode and did it when we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, yeah, as I was reflecting on the whole the whole uh, uh, collection of episodes that we've done mm-hmm. over the last 10, mm-hmm. uh, what sort of resonated in my head or what stuck in my head was this, that we'd sort of like laid out this idea of the auxiliary statement um, and sort of like... I, decided that it might have some bearing on our uh, how we might decide to develop theory in some way mm. or at least how we might decide to analyze the things that we we read um and sort of or how we might go about trying to work out what kind of political ideas and doctrines we might like to hold to and which mm. ones we came across that we might decide to jettison kind of thing um and i feel like for me anyway we kind of like proposed that idea and then <laughs> I never really thought about it again. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I was same. just maybe I was just relieved that it was settled, at least to the extent that we'd <laughs> we'd made some go at explaining <laughs> why we desperately scrabbled together that name uh, for the podcast when we did. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I mean, I guess it's 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 almost two different questions, right? I mean, because the idea of the auxiliary statement is like, what can you say that uh, with like the intent of keeping that theory in place, right? But that perhaps uh, doesn't necessarily. Um, well, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm saying. But I think that I think that it's something different as opposed to like uh, uh, side theories to Marxism, maybe. Because you know what you said. You said that a couple of days ago, and it's really got me thinking. I was thinking about it a lot, just like walking around today. But like what these things are, perhaps that would be central to like a Marxist project, and what again is just like peripheral. Mm-hmm. And it's. I think it was good that we read the Ellen Meeks Wood right because. Class has to be one of those things. I mean, if there's no such thing as class, where does that leave us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if we'd if we'd use that sort of terminology mm. in thinking about we well, we can continue to do that <laughs> going forward in thinking about class. Obviously, we've touched on class like almost permanently throughout this entire mm. well, the entire podcast really. But sure. like um, all, all these recent episodes, in some way or other, it comes up whether it's in relationship to the class and the state, class mm. and the party. Yeah. Um, sort of class in history kind of mm. class and its relationship to the mode of production kind mm. of um class and how it might or a class as an agent and how it might be organized or how it might be um either empowered or overruled by um a government project like project cybersyn sure kind of mm. um i mean i suppose very quickly anybody doesn't didn't listen to the episode mm. um doesn't necessarily recall um putnam basically suggests that scientists um rather rather than um what was he called the fo- the sort of his opponent the foil of that carl uh, popper rather than carl <laughs> popper <laughs> whenever you need to say that tell me because i love saying that name <laughs> um Hillary Putnam disagrees vehemently with Karl Popper's idea that what scientists do is attempt to falsify their own theories. Mm. Um, rather, Hillary Putnam sort of like preempted the the language of the um, paradigm that was sort of put forward later by Thomas Kuhn, kind of thing. Mm. Um, suggesting a period of time when certain ideas were dominant and they sort of like 
sort of dominate intellectual life and sort of and um scientists sort of take them almost nominally axiomatically i suppose mm. or they know that they're working with a certain set of theories and they only test certain elements of those theories and not the entire theory's truthfulness in its entirety um but the, what was what was more interesting, I think, from our standpoint, was he proposed the idea that quite a lot of scientific theories are not predictive in and of themselves. Sure, they're sort of like the, the structure of their their sort of logical format or what have you doesn't actually result in any like theoretical um, or any it doesn't it doesn't um, sort of like directly lead to any conclusions that we might make. It's mm. only when you take these theories and combine them with sort of like a series of what he calls auxiliary statements, which are like sort of like uh, situational applications for a theory kind of thing. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, it's not, I mean, it's not our idea. Mm. I, I stole it from someone else. It was a <laughs> book I was reading. Yeah, we could, we could claim it. <laughs> um, uh, to the suggestion is that, or the idea is that, um, in a lot of ways, this sort of like terminology applies quite heavily to Marx um, in terms of like, you might say that Marx had a series of sort of theoretical laws, mm. uh, either economic laws or historic laws or what have you, um, and then um, supplemented those sort of like axiomatic statements with historical and economic analysis mm. um, in in order to apply them to different times kind of thing. Mm. And to make them apply to different times, you might need different uh, auxiliary statements to sure. sort of supplement your theories kind of thing. Yeah, and if I can um, just interject for one second, I think please. it's interesting that when you just take, like, what you're saying, if you just take those original theories as, like, law and as and you don't apply them using auxiliary statements or anything like that, you get stuff like the base and superstructure, like exaggerations, right? Where you get uh, people who just believe i guess you get like economic determinism or you get determinism of some kind right so that's like the example right that we were working with with marx making the auxiliary statements was um something along the lines of uh the irish workers in england and how that you know how class also affects this idea of like economic determinism and the basis and a set as you think and the superstructure is built on many different things so if you just take those theories i suppose is what i'm saying as dogma then you run into mm, a bit of trouble. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I mean, it would be um, uh, bold of us to say that um, some of the people that we have uh, um, nominally criticised <laughs> under the under the guidance of other people who we've read and decided sure. that we like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you could certainly like. Uh, Oh, but be over, overly simplistic, perhaps, to, and say that um, some of what the some of the criticisms that we came across last week of like uh, structuralist thinking uh, could, I suppose, be, um, I guess, perhaps, a result from a very sort of like strict interpretation of mm. um, the initial texts, without the sort of like yeah, absolutely supplementary development see our Althusser episode yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> perhaps yeah yeah, yeah 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 have to explore the idea a bit more i'm mm. more i'm i mean i'm um i think a, a more concrete example that we can stand by is the idea that um 
quite often sort of what passes for Marxism might be um, something that was kind of laid that seemed well it was laid down in a sort of pseudo doctrinaire way and then has become doctrine over time mm. when when it was actually offered up as theory it was only for a mm. historically specific sure. case kind of thing yeah. and I suppose we came across a good example of that when we were reading um, Miliband on the party and class mm. um, and how um, the model of the sort of like democratically centralist organizational form that was proposed by Lenin for mm. the Social Democrat Party of Russia exactly. sort of became, yeah. kind of, or in some, in some instances has become uh, a sort of like, a sort of uh, more of a doctrinaire proposition. Mm. Um, more, it's, it's almost sort of, if we were to use this typology, which I'm, 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 still, I'm still trying to sort of stress test mm. to some extent, like <laughs> maybe it's possible in some people's, to some extent that like, the idea has slipped to become a law as opposed to sort yeah. of like a historically contingent um sort of tactical proposition kind of thing yeah tactical idea mm. um but i don't know i guess because like i was wondering whether we run the risk of kind of like either suggesting that there is a fully worked out schema that sort of like uh stems from marx which isn't the idea that i'd want to put forward kind sure. of thing like obviously he's not he doesn't he, he there's a lot of gaps in this this writing and he changes his mind all the time and like well, i mean i think the best example of what you're saying is the communist manifesto right because i mean written explicitly for the german workers movement yeah, in the yeah, middle yeah. of the 1840s yeah, right yeah. so i mean if like obviously some good ideas in that uh that that manifesto um but again i mean it's funny right because you're saying this and i kind of wonder like where do you draw the line you know what i mean because it's like you could totally go full postmodern and just be like i don't know dude working class isn't it none of this matters i don't care i mean that's not being fair to postmodernists maybe it is um but like you have to i mean it comes down to a personal decision right because it's like unless you're just going to be working with what someone else says which is, i mean i guess it's kind of what we're doing but it's like it comes down to and does it come down to your own personal experience how you define class how you define class struggle i guess it kind of does yeah. i don't know um i mean i suppose there is a very broad um i mean you could we could just turn this into a very broad typology right like mm. is this something that's historically contingent is it something that's like contingent to the entirety of this mm. mode of production and i suppose there sure. is a broader kind of like are oh, these things that are contingent to other factors that stand outside of the mode of production like mm. it, is there a human nature which is like sure. true of the entirety of like human beings existence kind of thing yeah um so you could break it down into that sort of simpler categorization mm. um and i think in some ways it's quite a useful it's i guess it's a useful way to for us to approach things um particularly if we're approaching it with the idea of like um trying to work out what kind of theories are up to date and which ones mm. aren't mm. uh where there might be gaps and where we can find other things that are sort of complementary if they're i don't know like, mm. um I mean, even just treating the theory as Ellen Mason's Wood and E.P. Thompson treat the study of class, right, as something that has a temporal aspect to it, mm -hmm. and one that's not mm -hmm. set in stone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that this, this, uh, I mean, you've already said it, but this, uh, mm. this distinction in terms of the last nine episodes probably most would benefit as most in terms of like 
in terms of our thinking about class, right? Because like, mm. um, I don't know how, how well we ever... Um, I don't know how how well I have successfully articulated to myself yet um, the centrality centrality of um, class, other than to say that it it is central in certain of these people's writings. Right? Sure. It's, it's like um, it's certainly central to Ellen Meeks's Wood's reading of Thompson in terms of like class and class consciousnesses relationship to historical development and that's something that we also saw reflected in Miliband, right? That's something mm. that Miliband holds with like class and class conflict is the basic structure of society and the thing which sort of propels it forwards. Mm. Um and I guess it's central because of its um centrality to how the mode of production functions and that's I guess that's yeah. that, that's the heart of like material uh, historical materialism, right? Like yeah. um Well I mean history is made up of uh of uh um modes of production and the, mm. the key hallmark of the modes of production is how one class sort of exploits the labor of another class kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, and you're only going to want to overturn those modes of production when there is some transformation in the, in the relationship between the classes kind of thing. Mm. And value. Um, and I mean, yeah, you, you bring up, um, uh, historical materialism. And I mean, one way I think of just framing the entire Marxist project or just any kind of socialist project at all would be, the one, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong about this, but the one thing that seems like you could absolutely point to in a materialist way to frame your entire political thinking is uh, ecological thought. And maybe that's kind of why we're more interested in getting into it in these next 10 episodes um, is because, I, you know, I, we are at a point where, okay, well, you know, you can just, you ask 10 Marxists what they, how they define class, you know, you'll get a 50 answer is ask them how to define class struggle, historical materialism, modes of production, anything like that. But I mean, we are getting to a point where the rubber has definitely already met the road in terms of uh, the objective crisis of climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, perhaps that is just what should be shaping our theory. What like, because I mean, if you were to say what would be the best way of organizing a society where we would be able to not have soil depletion, not have a complete climate catastrophe, uh, how can we produce uh, what we need to survive without uh, degrading the environment completely, I think it would look a lot like socialism, obviously, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's one thing that we could just use to phrase everything. Because, I mean, you probably wouldn't have... I mean, presumably, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't have a class completely dominating another class for means of consumption and for means of surplus value extraction. I mean, I don't know. I'd like to know a little bit more about metabolic rift before I speak entirely to that, but I mean creating a society where there is no metabolic rift, right? Where there mm -hmm. is no disconnect between production and between um, nature would be central to, I think, anything we're trying to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's like the only objective thing that I can really point to as like, maybe this should be uh, shaping everything that we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. You've, you've sold me on the idea of reading some stuff about metabolic rift. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I coined that phrase. I just <laughs> oh, really? Okay. John stole it from me. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I guess all I'm saying is that it's, uh, I don't know, maybe we get a little bit too into our heads about trying to have an academic description or definition of class when, um, I don't know, none of those things really seem like they were present in any of the great revolutions that we think about, right? I mean, obviously there were class um, compromises and also just like class alliances. Mm -hmm. So you you're never really going to be like, oh, it's just going to be these people on one side and these people on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, 
I think somewhere Marx wrote about like how eventually it might have been an 18th premiere about how in times of crisis like this parts of like the bourgeoisie actually do go over to the revolutionary side but um yeah I don't know subjective almost I mean not objective subjective I mean so yeah it's really difficult isn't it like we you can you can I guess this is an example of like I mean I feel like I'm straying quite a long way away from <laughs> the sort of like the sort of core theory or law mm. auxiliary statement distinction. Straight. Like, it's all, all just sort of like structures some thinking, doesn't it? Um, but I suppose, it, yeah, I guess, I suppose the off, the off, like, it's all well and good, this kind of like, um, yeah, I don't know whether this is a, a gap between the, the two or mm. they're joining. Mm. It's all well <laughs> and good saying that like, um, it's only uh, some change in the relationship between classes that will result in the, a change in the mode mm. of production kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but in in reality, to some extent, like um, there is just a mass of people mm. and it almost feels like the idea of one class versus another sort of like for like you have this sort of conceptual idea and then they fall into different reliefs depending on mm. when and how you look to some extent yeah um and i guess perhaps our political project is not necessarily to be like this is strictly what is this and yeah. this is strictly what is that but yeah. this is um a goal a goal i suppose if we were to attempt to be like politically active or to make a political significantly mm. political significantly their significant political intervention. <laughs> Significantly <laughs> politi- political is, significant is, intervention. Is to, is to build some kind of coalition of peoples mm. who are capable of enacting some kind of change. Sure. Um, now, we have some idea of who those coalitions of peoples are going to be, kind of sure. thing. And I guess that's how a class analysis comes in, right? Mm. Um, you can sort of work out who your allies might be and also work out what the necessary connections might be or mm. um, what, the, what the plausible alliances might be. Uh, you can work out how you can make an appeal to people who might have other interests, right? Because we talked yeah. about this. Mm. There are pe- internal to classes, there are people with massively different interests, kind of thing. Yeah. Even Even people you could definitely designate as people who are members of the ruling class or the bourgeois class obviously mm. have different interests. Kind of or even even people who you could confidently identify as members of the working class mm. have wildly different and divergent interests at different sure. times. Kind of thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I'm just, I'm just going through my head. I'm just thinking of, like, different definitions of working class that I've heard about... Um, one that seems simplistic to the point of, like, I kind of like it just of, like, I don't know, whatever. It's just relying on the wage form. But, I mean, like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That could mean, like, so obviously it's not, like, someone who has an investment portfolio, right? But it could be someone who, like, you don't traditionally think of as working class who has a job that it's, like, me, well, obviously, but they do just rely on their paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the, or, or the, the families of people who... Mm. Sure. Who, sort of the dependents of people who mm. are direct wage earners mm. are dependent on, like... Mm wages to survive kind of thing Mm. um yeah and i mean i guess i'm just tempted to just say it's anyone who has a vested interest in the overthrow of capitalism and i mean that could be someone who isn't class conscious right and i mean that's kind of like the the tricky bit i mean i'm tempted to say that literally everybody except for maybe like 50 people would benefit from (laughs) capitalism being overthrown like even people you're like that person's clearly not working class it's true yeah but it depends on what kind of time scales right like yeah Oh sure. If if, yeah. if it if it's like now or like twenty <laughs> third century Star Trek, yeah, like true. whatever, whether that's communism or not, is another question. But like, 
Um, but like, there are certain people who would benefit from living in a communist society who were in a worse off state in like 19... 21 in Russia than they were in yeah, 1914 sure. yeah. in Russia. Yeah, kind of yeah exactly. Yeah, George de Morinchil, perhaps. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other definitions of working class. Um, I don't know. Can you can you think of any just off the top of your head? Um, I suppose I suppose you can depend. You can start in different places, right? You could mm. start with an analysis of how capitalism works, and sure. and then say, well, you could go to those definitions which fixate on specific professions or like mm -hmm. um there is a reason why the industrial worker became so central right because there was this idea that like they're collected together in large factories and they're mm -hmm. um they're sort of almost being trained for sure. socialism kind of thing yeah. by them by the mode of production mm -hmm. um the not sort of potatoes like proverbial like collective worker that they become mm -hmm. um but i get i get i don't know whether that's like looking at a certain section of the working class or mm -hmm. whether you're saying right that's the working class kind of thing. Yeah. Or I guess it depends how you break down your yeah. analysis of... Um... I mean, yeah, if we're using that time frame, then I would feel like peasants, the peasant class, again, like vital to like a, like a, some kind of socialist revolution, right? Uh -huh. I mean, but again, that isn't necessarily somebody who's being trained for socialism. I don't know if that matters, at least not like right now or right mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't think of many peasants outside of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, also, also yeah, going under that definition, like how collectively peasants were, they live mm. as certain collectives, but also that sure. I suppose it depends how your peasant society is structured, <laughs> and it also depends whether your peasants are living under capitalism or living under like the yeah the, living under a different mode of production, or even like some kind of hybrid, right? Like, mm. I mean, it, during the transition, there were like capitalists and feudal relations that. Are, that exist at the same time. Yeah. I don't know whether there are any feudal relations that still exist in the world now. Mm. Um, Never know. Company what, towns. What the existence of, like, Chinese peasants is like, such yeah. as they exist now. Yeah, sure. They're not peasants, are they? just, like, farm labourers, basically, yeah. I would imagine. I really don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they yeah. speak totally out of turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess, could you just say someone who's the surplus value that they create is being appropriated? Because I feel like that is... A, Maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like that's a much broader definition because could you consider like a lawyer to be someone whose surplus value is being created? Like how do you apply that to like a civil servant? How do you apply that to like... Yeah, I guess you can look at the relationship to... Like, like people can fulfill different professions and mm. be, it can be structured in a different way, right? Like, yeah. Um, uh, a lawyer who's paid a huge wage could still be being like... Mm exploited in that they're making more value for the law firm that they work for than yeah. um but then i guess like a private lawyer is i suppose petty bourgeois in a mm. different sense kind of thing yeah. or like mm. um i don't know how many people are at the top of law firms who are still f functioning as lawyers but yeah. like um they're Didn't sort I... of like functionally uh ruling class or sort of <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're, sure. They're, yeah, they're the capital to they're, they're the exploiters of a whole series of people underneath, yeah. and then like, I don't know how many people draw wages, but also like, uh, benefit from exploitation in another way, kind of thing. We'll consider ambulance chasers to be working class. We like them; <laughs> they're pretty cool. They're funny. Um, yeah. So I mean, oh god, should we tie back? I guess just to the auxiliary statement to attempt to kind of have some sort of theories to go along. I mean, right? Like if we're trying to apply all of these ideas that we came to in the last 10, nine episodes, whatever, 
to now. Obviously, what was the most recent text? I don't know. Ellen Meeksons Wood, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Would that have been like 10, 15 years ago? I suppose maybe. Oh, most more. recent. I don't know. You remember, which one did we read <laughs> no. most recently? <laughs> when did we read that? I mean, Jack, it was last ago. week. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mean in terms of like when, when they were written, written or events? Yeah. I mean, Eden Medina was written in 2015. Oh, Eden Medina, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I suppose. The Republic came history. out in 2017 or something. That's true. Oh my God, there are so many that are so recent. I suppose, yeah. So many great things that we've read. That's too many. I've just been just thinking. We've gotten such a, so in the habit and we enjoy so much reading texts from the 1970s just so that we can <laughs> say over and over again, this is a text from X date. And exactly. it's dated in these ways. Which, which episode was it? It's a good cop-out for us. Kind of <laughs> it is. Which episode was it that I claimed to have become a, a Maoist? Was that the... There was the, there was the party, the, the one where you, where you accused me of being a Stalinist. That's true. Yeah, that was the party in class one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so the dialectic here being resolved, finally. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I suppose if we're attempting to apply the name of the show in any way to like what we're reading, I did, I think I did really get a lot, I mean, I'm going to be kind of saying this again, but from the E.P. Thompson and Ellen Meekson's Wood idea of um, I'm going to kind of take this away from kind of just solely the study of class, but in any discipline that you're working with, you, and this ties into the Hillary Putnam, and anything that you're working with, you do have to understand that you are part of a process of learning and understanding and that ideas that perhaps were valid once, you have to really attempt to even just maybe like tweak a little bit to apply to the current day or anything like that. Um, again, like adding that temporal aspect, whether it's to the study of classes, applying it, creating like a historical process for that. Um, but uh, I think that that's something that I'm going to really be trying to keep in mind going forward and try and be a little bit less like, I don't know, maybe like dogmatic on certain things or like, you know, it's like the Marxist-Leninist thing, right? It's like, you're still calling yourself a Marxist-Leninist. It's like, all right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, mm. Yeah, it's magical know. power. These words have magical power. Exactly, <laughs> magic. Um, anything else to say on the auxiliary statement? Um, uh, I actually wrote some things down. Oh the kind of like mind map. <laughs> Whoa. Um, I don't know whether it's got anything there. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to say no. All right. I will say, to finish that off, I'm interested to see where we kind of came close to having a little bit of like a, a bit of a breakdown in the Ellen Meekson's Wood questioning everything episode. Interested to see when that happens next. Interested to see uh, uh, perhaps when I begin to really question Maoism as the one true philosophy. <laughs> um, I did think it was interesting reading People's Republic of Walmart as kind of like that bridge between Meekson's Wood and Miliband on one end and um, maybe like Stafford Beer, uh, the VSM, all of that on the other, the Eden Medina. Um, because it really kind of attempted to bridge and answer the questions of like science as it relates to class and uh, technocracy, right? And, you know, as socialists, obviously, we would like to see something resembling a planned economy so that nothing, well, as little as possible falls apart in the near future. But I mean, you know, it was good to read a text where they at least attempted to answer how that wouldn't turn into um, a antagonistic relationship between just another type of class and the people kind of like maybe creating value. Um, I guess kind of attempted to be answered as well in the cybernetic revolutionaries. Um, I will never kind of know how that would have turned out, obviously. Um, but yeah, that question of technocracy is one that I've been really thinking about a lot, top down versus bottom up. 
Um, again, I still have VSM brain, so I'm still really thinking about like the relationship between democratically organized workplaces as the answer to that question, as one that can't really democratically organizing your workplaces so that it, it would then be impossible for some kind of authoritarian top-down system to apply itself. I don't know if that's actually possible. It's a nice thought, I suppose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, both the, for me anyway, both the Medina reading and the, the people's Republic of Walmart, um, they both sought to make possible the idea that you could sort of plan democratically kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I suppose, yeah, for me, for the, from the standpoint of the kind of like, well, I guess I've been, I've been struggling with something which sort of stems from the reading about a party and class to some extent, mm. although it applied in both of these contexts as well. Um, where with the well in terms of the in terms of those two those those readings on sort of cybernetics and what I might generally just describe as like planning mm. like the 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 sections on planning the the readings on planning seem to counterpose themselves to an idea of politics to some extent like mm. um this is what you mean by top down bottom up or sure. like technocratic versus mm. whatever how to get the be. state to like quote unquote like wither away Perhaps. Sure. Yeah. 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 But also, just just yeah. But to to, to a, sort of escape the idea, lingering idea in my head that like, um, well, maybe it's best described from the 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 the, the position of like party and class. Mm. Like, I sort of ended the party and class thinking, or with this idea that the with a, probably like a, a false idea that I should probably try and remove from my <laughs> head, which is like there is pure class. Mm. And then there is sort of like impure implementation of the either the will, mm. which is good. Like it's both sure. implementing the will of a class, if such that you can claim to be able to represent it, mm. is probably fine. Mm. Or implementing the interests of a class, which might be a bit more of a dubious proposition. Sure. But like that activity of what in that reading from Miliband we might call party kind of thing. Mm. It, 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 I'm trying to escape the idea that like that is somehow an impure implication, application of a sort of like pure and idealized um, sort of like mm. either desire or interest or sort of what have you. Mm. And the same I kind of feel in in terms of the the ideas I'm planning, right? Like um, how much was it that um, uh, the the program of reforms implemented by uh, Allende, of which Project CyberSim was a was the the most important part from our perspective, the most interesting part from our perspective, I suppose. Mm. Um, how much were they implemented in some ways, sort of like either against or um, uh, yeah, not against the 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 working class, but sort of like. Mm either behind their backs or without their consultation, how much was it imposed rather than inspired by um, uh, class action? Now, that might just be like a sort of like a paradigm that's generated in my head, sure. which is always, which is it's almost generated by our understanding of how politics functions and mm. the world in which we live, right? Like we're so accustomed to like mm. uh, delegating an authority to somebody to sort of like run our affairs for us in the political yeah. in the political front kind of thing um but i'm sort of left with this sort of and also 
I mean, there was just a general, just in in, in general, the 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 image that we got of um, Project Cybersyn was very fixated on the sort of internal workings of the government bodies that were putting it into place and yeah. concerned with the the thoughts of the yeah. key actors. Mm. And it wasn't a reading about all of the sort of self organization, all the conscious action that was yeah. being was happening in. Um, in all of the various factories all over Chile, or at least the idea was reflected only, <laughs> only occasionally, kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And I guess in a lot of cases, it's very easy to get lost in like, um, in sort of revolutionary processes where you fixate really heavily on the sort of the key actors and sort of become abstracted from um, conscious actions such that it exists from. Sort of normal people, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe it's just for me to always look for, or for us perhaps to like find readings that are much more focused on. Mm. And maybe I would have a much better understanding, or a much I would have that ratio in balance, I suppose, between the sort of purity and purity, or like mm. I would have a I would like demystify the the sort of pure idea of like. Uh, class action that I have if I sort of like mm. if we looked more at historical cases of like um, working class agents taking action in sort of shop floor setting but mm. also I guess what I, what's also forgotten in this is or what I'm also forgetting in this and what's quite often forgotten in criticisms of like um, political parties I suppose was like like people who are prominent in working class political parties not always, but quite often are working class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that the history of of of, uh, of socialist politics, socialist governments, is quite easily made to look like um, sort of intellectuals of one sort or another yeah. who are removed from the working class making decisions for the working class that yeah. are either against their interest or at least do not have their full consent kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think um, it's fair to but say. I, maybe, but it may be like, to the extent that that, well, like that, that, I mean, now I'm just going around in circles with topics <laughs> that we just talked about in the middle of that reading, right? But like, that is the question, right? Like how far, how far are we willing to let those two escape one another and what kind of like feedback mechanisms do we want to have? Um, and I suppose maybe this is a place where you could bring it back cybernetics back in or the sort of viable system model and like yeah, well, how would you structure those relationships? I mean, I think it's fair to say at the very least that uh, Stafford, or not Stafford Beer, Salvador Allende and popular unity and all of that came to power as the result of class struggle, right? I mean, like, I don't think that's a very like crazy thing to say that all those people, they didn't just vote for them because they were like, yeah, why not? I mean, that was obviously the result of class struggle. I, I What that's got me questioning, though, is like <clears throat> how many socialist, successful socialist revolutions there have been where the working class, to some extent, hasn't been duped in some way. And I don't mean that to say, like, uh, any of these, you know, all of these revolutions were, like, uh, run by charlatans or disaster in any way like that. But I do wonder to the extent of, like, when you get someone like Salvador Allende or even someone like Lenin, right, where it's like, guys, we're just going to do it. Don't worry about it. We got it now. We'll take care of it. We'll deal with it. Keep doing your thing. Uh, we got it. I mean, you know, it all does get to a certain point where the revolution happens and the class struggle brings all of this momentum to that point. 
and then you're kind of told at a certain point, all right, settle down now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The revolution has to kind of stop. I Maybe mean, I'm sounding like a bit of a Trotskyist. I don't know, but like, <laughs> it, I don't know. It does have me kind of questioning uh the maybe i don't know maybe just the form of the revolution perhaps and it's um uh there's a word for this it's truthiness it's relationship with between truth and the working class i don't know if that makes sense i don't know again there's a word for it i can't think of it um (laughs) but yeah i don't know just gonna come me thinking about revolutions even and about i guess opposed to bring that into the miliband as well about the relationship of politics as a tool to kind of bring about socialism yeah yeah, yeah. maybe I'm, now i'm sounding like an anarchist <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over the place i'm keen to, i'm looking forward to oh i'm i'm looking forward to in the next 10 episodes to finishing the ralph miller man book yes <laughs> yeah um the Never last know. chapter of which is on reform and revolution yeah um so i'm looking forward to sort of getting into that and also like finding other ways to tackle this question like mm. um what is a revolutionary politics and does it necessarily entail like Revolution in the sense that we think of it, mm. in, in terms of like I don't mm. know, wheeling your can, your empty cannon up to the gates <laughs> of the prison kind of thing. Um, we can build some barricades around here. Build some barricades. I don't know. <laughs> just get vaporized <laughs> within an instant. But you can build some. You can build some barricades. Um. Yeah. We. Yeah. I mean. I guess that kind of gets me to think about the German Revolution, right? Where that was the great disaster of this kind of halting the class struggle and being like, we got it from here, guys. Don't worry. The social Democrats and your silly uh, councils, your silly Soviets, Bavaria, get out of here. Stop. Um, (laughs) And put trust us. You know what I mean? And I mean, again, like, how do you stop that? Because it's it's a game of percentages, right? Like whatever percentage of the working class you're able to motivate and mobilize to uh, successfully create some kind of, paradigm shift in the realm of politics i don't think that actually makes sense but you know what i mean um a certain percentage of it will then kind of be like all right that's enough i'm done i'm too tired i'm mm. tired and you know it's starting to you get that obviously but again how do you keep that going how do you keep the energy there mm-hmm. and i remember the question here which is like the day after the revolution what do you do kind of thing yeah yeah or like there's all like there's there's certainly like uh it's all well and good hanging your hopes on revolution kind mm. of thing um but you have to plan for afterwards <laughs> yeah. and you have to institute some kind of new like um i don't know what nikolai bukhari might have called like uh an equilibrium kind of thing like yeah. some new some new settlement has to be made kind of thing yeah um it's got me thinking about organization again. It's yeah, just the key yeah, issue, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. how do we successfully organize these movements to be self-sustaining? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, it's self-sustaining and also, like, um, have built in the capacities to sort of, like, take over the running of things to, at the state, I suppose, yeah. or, like... Yeah. Um, yeah, ha- ha- have competent significantly many competent people ready to ready to step into any voids that are mm. are opened up kind mm. of thing, uh, in terms of like system functioning or state functioning or uh... mm. yeah i wonder i mean maybe those are too broad of questions to be asking i mean maybe it's about organization but it's also about re-regionalizing and re um i don't know i got maybe just reorganizing i mean in a way that puts your class interests right up at the front so that you really understand it's not like 
oh, cool. Now we got a, a different Democrat in power. You know what I mean? Now it's like, you know, how do you make it apparent uh, where your production is coming from, I guess? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah, like a, a good revolutionary politics would be to make it clear or to be a... To be a political actor on the side of revolution would be to make it clear that you are for the sort of like for a fundamental break with the way mm. things, yeah, function. Kind yeah, of and why those are bad. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess how people know that or like. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. How do you how do you hopefully do that before it isn't just blatantly obvious and killing people, <laughs> right? In terms of the environment or in terms of absolute capitalist collapse. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because I like to think that you could do it before that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm now back on that old that question you asked like earlier on, which was mm. like, uh, but it framed in a different way, like um, with the timescales of the environment, yeah, till collapse, <laughs> we're yeah. witnessing kind of thing, yeah. Um, is there really room for hope? Yeah. <laughs> this oh, comes God. back to the pessimism that we were this talking the, about last this week. This is the alpaca lips? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. The alpaca lips question. The mouth of the llama. <laughs> um, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's what else are you going to do other than hopefully be hopeful? I mean, I think, again, I mean, it's what you said, right? Uh, whatever episode that was, maybe last episode about like you can live with this knowledge while still not having it be totalizing in your brain and attempting to work towards something else. Um, which you said. I was like, I could have said that. <laughs> well done, Dan. What a great quote. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully the working class can be motivated before that complete collapse. Mm. Um, and then if it isn't, hopefully it, that energy isn't siphoned off to create something worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Post-environmental apocalypse. <laughs> a um, Mad Max situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. As socialists, should we be in favor of that? I don't know. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah. No. <laughs> no Mad Max. Um, oh, yeah. How do I feel about living in the Mad Max world? <laughs> I would die immediately. Yeah. Someone would look at me and I'd die. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, I'm not I think I'm familiar leather. enough with, with Mad Max to know mm. Mm. how it exists. I tried to watch the first movie once and I was just like, this is too corny. I can't it do is. This. It's too corny. I know. I don't know why the, loves I think the so only much. one that I've seen is the is the the most recent one, whatever it was called. Pretty good. Yeah. I need to watch I should watch it again. It was more spectacle and less like sure. like engageable the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I feel like why are you watching Mad Max if you don't want spectacle? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there are different types of apocalypse movies, aren't they? Where like the apocalypse is sort of a depiction of a society, of a yeah. sort of functioning society. And I don't know whether that was. <laughs> was yeah, like... yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I don't even have a car. I'd be a disaster mm. in, the, in the Mad Max mm. world. Mm. Um, one more thing. I suppose, I... like, I don't need to get a license, do I? Like, <laughs> You'd, at that point, I, I, that, who, who is going to... I know how to drive, sort of. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to like check my license exactly. maybe that's the first maybe that's the, maybe that's the best outcome yes, maybe that's that, this, okay excellent, excellent. uh-oh excellent. dan's an accelerationist <laughs> for the sake of my not having to make another attempt to pass a driving test um roll on the mad max apocalypse yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. um there was one more thing i wanted to bring up what was it soil soil it's all about it's all about no-till um 
Was it like a serious thing? Or like it was a, a serious like a thing, thing, I forget. Oh, okay. uh, oh, I know what it was. It's this question of, that kind of frustrates me a little bit with um, <clears throat> socialists, I'll say, with this idea that um, whatever comes next will probably just be socialism. And I like I do I kind of feel like that's obviously it's determinist, but it's also like uh, that's obviously uh, optimistic, but perhaps a little bit uh, not really helpful in any way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean like thinking that what comes after the capitalist mode will inevitably be socialism. I think it's kind of something that I've been a little bit frustrated with, and I think it's implied in a lot of readings that are Marxist or not. Um, and I think perhaps one that we should attempt to move away from, from if for no other reason than just um, realism. You, know? <laughs> you mean being realistic? Being realistic, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, uh, I, I just I kind of treat it as a form of accelerationism because it's like, I don't think that's taken for granted. It should be take, shouldn't be taken for granted at all that what's going to come next is going to be socialism. Uh, yeah, yeah, one yeah. would certainly hope so. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that would be that would be the... The, the highest form of like teleological thinking wouldn't yeah. it just be like the ultimate outcome is <laughs> communism and like, yeah it's gonna be perfect and here here is the step-by-step yeah route to it. well i suppose at least having a roadmap is one thing but like um assuming blindly that it's sort of definitely going to be the outcome kind of thing yeah um mm. i mean it, it, it flies in the face of like um a sort of like sober historical materialist reading yeah of hist- of sort of concept understanding of history i suppose mm-hmm. um but also it just flies in the face of the prospect that things could get a damn sight worse <laughs> it's true right? it's very true <laughs> very true <laughs> um yeah what did marx promise socialism or the the ruin of the, t- the condensing glasses yes yes oh god <laughs> Barbarism, I don't know if that... It depends on what it looks like. If it looks like Conan, eh, maybe I'm okay at that. If it looks like Mad Max, eh, I don't think I'm okay with that. <laughs> Although, again, in Conan's world, I would be killed immediately. Socialism or Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Conan the Barbarian, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's a nice thought. Mm. Um, that's mm-hmm. lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a text we haven't talked about? Um, or one that we've perhaps given... Uh, short shrift on? I don't think so. Should we bestow our favorite text of the last nine upon the royal listener? Oh, okay. Or maybe not favorite, sure. just so we don't make like a value judgment, but like, eh, what's a good one? <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like last time perhaps I did I, the same thing when I, I just said the most recent one. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I think I perhaps enjoyed... Um, the first episode, I mean, both I both I thought both of them were good. The first episode that we did that was based on Nina and Medina's cybernetic mm. revolutionaries mm. Um, was very impactful on me, mostly for the introduction to cybernetic theory that it gave. Sure, because I'd made minimal sort of attempts to engage with it, but um, it was it was it was partial, but it was very mm. clear and concise, um, and. Just sort of the theoretical terminology was very useful for me to mm. get, yeah, get to grips with kind of thing and st- sort of start to understand some of this terminology for sure. Understand the viable system model, uh, understand sort of like the idea of a black box and how to sort of incorporate yeah. it into thinking. Um, 
like something that we didn't talk about in that episode but like but that I was was similarly uh <laughs> similarly interesting to learn about was the um uh law of requisite variety oh yeah sure uh, yeah, yeah. which is a piece of terminology that I come across a bunch of times and not mm. really like it was mm. it was nice to have that as an answer to like cybernetics a sister a a sort of like science of control sounds really sort of like um, mm. sounds really um dictatorial or despotic yeah. and sort of like mm. science of control um mm. but that, the idea that control is diversity yeah exactly the, the, the way that you answer diversity is with greater diversity, diversity exactly yeah um it's a nice piece of sort of theoretical yeah yeah, I think just by virtue of that introduction to cybernetics, it's hard to get yourself into reading about something called complex systems theory because it's like, <laughs> I'm never going to look that up. Come on. But yeah, absolutely fantastic. A great intro on all those ideas. Not as complicated as you think as well. I mean, I'm sure you could get into the actual complex nature of it all. But these are ideas that can be explained to anybody. And yeah. you would go, oh, yeah, why isn't this just being done everywhere? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so your pick, Eden Medina. That's my pick. Excellent. I like that pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a hard time with the Ellen Meekson's Wood at, on my first read through, but perhaps I might actually give that the, uh, honor of, uh, one of my favorite readings of these past 10, just because introducing that idea, I, I've mentioned this before, but I really do have a hard time with some of like the more academic and, um, I just, I, I just kind of see it as like gatekeepy but also just like almost posh like bordering on like out of touch nature of a lot of uh, academic study and i perhaps had a little bit of trouble with thelemixon's wood because of that but once i understood what she was saying and what um ep thompson's ideas were it got rid of a lot of those ideas about marxism for me because it introduced ideas where it's like if you come across anyone who you know really attempts to like have a strict interpretation of a specific theory um they're kind of jokers because you need to introduce some sort of flexibility to your ideas and maybe that wasn't the main idea behind that reading but that's definitely what i took from it the most so i uh really enjoyed that reading i would also like to give an honorable mention to people's republic of walmart because that i read that daniel lent it to me a while ago a long time ago now and um that was the first introduction i really had to uh the planning side of socialism and um, got an incredible amount from that and the things that made me read afterwards. I think that was my favorite episode that we did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Oh, memories. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of, I mean, I don't know. Should we play favorites? (laughs) Yeah, in terms of just as a flow and dynamic, my listening back to it, I was like, Mm. oh, this is all right. This feels quite reasonable. I mean, like, who am I to say? Mm. Who am I to say? Um, <laughs> the one making them. Yeah, 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 I suppose so. I suppose so. At the coal face. The podcast exactly. coal face. Podcast coal face. Um, I might. Um, how about another honourable mention? Uh. Another. I'm, I'm. 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 Waving my hand as if to suggest I'm about to bow. Oh wow. Um, 
Thank you again, Comrade Tom O'Brien. <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> we didn't mention that. Comrade Tom. And again, we'll thank him for that episode. We'll thank him for being the know-it-all in the comments of our Capital Radiant series. Um, that is actually very appreciated. We, we, yeah, we intend to count on you continuing to be the yes. know-it-all in the comments. Please, <laughs> <Yeah>. please God, <laughs> please. Um, yeah, great. That, my favorite episode, of course. <laughs> very, very good. Um... What was your favorite, this is the real question, best Star Trek episode of these last 10 weeks? Because for me, easy, although now I'm blanking on the name of it, Timescape, I believe that's the name of it. Best best Next Generation episode of all time is the one where it just blows up continuously. <laughs> Bought it up on another time episode. It's time, it's something like that. Whatever, I bring time it up on arrow? another. No, it's time <laughs> Uh, time. Maybe that's a different episode. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever it is, the one where it keeps blowing up. So good. Uh. That gets the Jack Beverly. Said my last name. That gets the Jack. <laughs> uh, <Beep>. <laughs> <laughs> that gets the Jack. Uh, I mean, you've. Uh, I mean, you linked your Twitter to. The oh yeah, I have. Have a nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Got you Undo the followers. <laughs> one. <laughs> Congratulations um, to them. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, um, that's my episode of these past ten weeks. All right, all right. I don't know. I, I'll come back to it in a minute. I was reading an article today um, about how Robin Williams was initially <laughs> meant to be in an episode of Next Generation. Oof. I think season five, episode nine. Uh, he was meant. I, I don't remember this episode or the description <laughs> of it. He was meant. Apparently, there is an episode where like somebody comes from the future, claiming to be a time traveler, hmm. but actually they they are a time traveler, but actually they're the twist that was ruined. I, I must have watched it before. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, I intend to watch it again. Um, the twist that was ruined for me in the article, and now I'm going to ruin for you, is that <laughs> actually he's from the past, Ooh. who's stolen a piece of time travel technology, and he's attempting to collect future to, to co collect technology to take back to the past to sort of like win his fortune. Anyway, that like ca hero. this character was meant to be played by Rob, Ro Robin, Robin Williams, my <laughs> um, <by> Robbie Williams, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, alas, it could not be, and I assume oh. it's played by someone else. I'm going to go and check out that episode after this. It can I just say that the best celebrity cameo in Star Trek is when Kelsey Grammer is just on it for like five seconds at the end of that episode where the, is it the one where the Enterprise keeps blowing up and it's because the ship keeps going into them from the past or whatever? Yeah. And he's like, what the oh, hell are you doing in my way? And they're like, it's 500 years later. And then the episode ends. It's like, why was that Kelsey Grammer? It's like, that was unnecessary. Mm. There is an episode of Star Trek Voyager mm. that has Tom Morello in it. Really? Yeah, oh, that's cool. and um, and it's a long, it's a long and very awkward, although very funny and fun <laughs> interaction he has with the, because I, 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 it's a, I think it's an episode where they're following some people who are just like schmucks on the Voyager <laughs> kind of thing, like not not main uh, cast characters, like just some people, uh, um, and then. Catherine Janeway goes looking for them and she's, I don't know, she's wandering about the sort of like one of the nacelles on the thing looking for whoever and uh, and runs into Tom Morello. Morello. She's yeah. like, Tom Morello? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, whoa. Um, Tom Morello is also in um, a Star Trek movie, the one with... Um, Tom Hardy? No... <laughs> Insurrections? Oh, really? Um, you know, you know the you know the aliens that having to keep having their their skin on their face like taken off yeah, and yeah, regrafted yeah. back oh, on. He plays like an extra one of those in oh. the background, but he's got all the all the good on, so you don't know. Oh, interesting. Um, 
I remember really enjoying that his cameo in Voyager, and I'm going to have to go back and watch mm. it to see why. Mm. I think it's because there is a knowing look in both. <laughs> it's a very strange fourth wall breaking moment <laughs> where like they both can't. he does a good job of acting, but also uh, like, there's a weird kind of like uh, ah. buy my new album. <laughs> wink, ah. wink. <laughs> it's like when Stephen Colbert was in one I mean, of the I... Hobbits or something, and they pan past him, and it's like that's Colbert. <laughs> Like, I need another reason to hate these movies. Yeah. <laughs> I hate Stephen Colbert. No, I don't hate Stephen Colbert. It's just like, and it's, come on, that's Stephen Colbert. It's not like a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's really, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, okay, I understand. Like, it's really fourth wall breaking. And, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but the, the, those Hobbit movies were an, an extended experience of fourth wall breaking. Can we make I mean, a promise? It, I mean, it had, it had um, Billy Connolly. <laughs> that's and true. That, I mean, <laughs> we make a promise to never talk about those movies on the show again. Dumb. Scouts on it. Dwarves, I hate to say it, they just don't marry elves. I hate to say it, I'm sorry. That's not a very <laughs> progressive thing of me to say, but that just doesn't happen. I'm sorry, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay, folks, we're putting a line under it. <laughs> yeah. Apparently dwarves don't marry elves. Dwarves do not marry elves. That makes no sense. Interspecies relationships have only happened three times, Dan. They've been very important, and it's only ever been humans and elves. I'm sorry. They've been epoch-defining. That was not epoch-defining. That was just Peter Jackson being like, why not? God. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> what was your favorite Star Trek episode? This is why we're not talking about the Hobbit movies. <laughs> um. Uh, I can't remember. How Hobbit. about the Tom Morello episode? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been watching. Um, I've been watching Enterprise. <laughs> really? Yeah. How's that? Um, I've, I've, yeah, I've watched bits of it in the past. What I never realized is that, like quite how like totally out of their depth <laughs> the crew in general and Archer in particular are depicted as being uh. like I mean he's meant to be like we we do not have like any of the we don't have the prime directive we don't have any of the regulations on mm -hmm. how to be we don't know we haven't yet learned how to be like um stick stuff stuck up our ass like the card <laughs> kind of thing like uh. um but it's almost like that. He's they're all, he's almost like clownish. This is Jonathan Archer, like clownishly arrogant and kind of like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not worked out whether I like it or not yet. I think you like it. That that feature. Are there, are there, uh, Enterprise always surprises me. There are. All, I always enjoy it more than I remember. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I'm also I'm also I'm also probably the only person <laughs> in the world who is willing to defend the very corny sort of intro music that Enterprise was given. But cue that right now. I think it sounded pretty good. <laughs> I don't know, wait till you listen to it. Oh, okay, uh-oh. A little ADR. Um, yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Um, what a 10 episodes it has been. Um, so many people to thank. So many fans to thank. Our millions of listeners. Um... Really, only one person to thank, and that's Tom. And we've thanked him, so no more thanking. Yeah. And it will be done. Hmm. No, thank you. Oh, for listening. Oh, course. thank you, Jack. But thank you. Also, thank Dan. you, the listener, the royal listener. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank yous all over the place. <laughs> yeah, <nice. laughs> um, next ten episodes, they're going to be the best yet. Yeah, we've got some the only ways huge up. things the only ways planned. Up. We don't. Uh, I just... One thing we should it's, mention. It's, it's a teleological podcast. Like, it just it extends toward the utopia. Exactly. Like, it's going to be huge. One step at a time. Um, 
if you've listened like this the, far, like the, the the toolbox of knowledge, we just <laughs> so we're just to adding to. We're getting to that totality, that singularity of knowledge. We all get uploaded to a computer. Um, if you've listened this far, we should tell you, and uh, it's not up yet, so I'm just gonna say it to make ourselves do it. Um, we have put together an explainer for the viable systems model on our YouTube page. Um, you can go and check it out. It's a very cursory introduction to Stafford Beer's idea of the viable systems model, and it attempts to kind of give background to his ideas and to explain how they could potentially be used by you, the royal listener, in your workplaces, or maybe if you want to start a political party. I'm just saying, you could use these ideas. Mm -hmm. You could use the Even ideas for anything. Even your podcast, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> um... So go check it out. Uh, just, I don't know, YouTube auxiliary statements. You don't need me to spell it out. You'll, you're smart. You can figure it out. Viable systems model. If you want to know more about it, um, there should be some links there for more in-depth uh, studies of the viable systems model. And it's great. It's fantastic. Send it to people who are trying to organize, hopefully. Please. Like, share, subscribe. Like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> rate five stars. Um, and uh, it has been said that Dan sounds like a professor. Uh -huh, so uh -huh, check uh -huh. it out. A very, a very kind, very kind. Uh, yeah. Imagine if you're mean. <laughs> oh, no, I mean... Uh, no, I mean... Oh, the, I see. The, the, the I first... see <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I come across as a very kind professor. He's <laughs> also a very kind... Of uh, um, guy. Promotion. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Received. Um, yeah, so that's cool. I don't know, nothing else. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, Jack, Jack released a new... A new adjunct statements. I did. There's a new one it's out. It's excellent. I listened thank to it so today. Much. Did you? Oh, thank you. The um, audience should go listen to it right now if they haven't oh done it yet. Yes, go. Or, or not. Um, don't really. What was it idea. about? It was about a book that friend of the show, Ed, lent to me. Um, and it is Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire and attempting to come to terms with his ideas. Uh, Alan Moore, an anarchist. Alan Moore, a magician. What does that mean? And altogether, just a cool book. I just talk about it. I don't know. It's neat. It's dark, though. That's the only thing. It's uh -huh, a lot darker uh -huh. than the story. Yeah, I, yeah so. I was listening. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, Jack, story right? Right? <laughs> Hey, buddy, whoa. Um, yeah, if you have a uh, trigger warning for uh, children being burned at the stake, I'll say that. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and, and also, um, where's he from? Who? Alan Moore? Yeah. Northampton? Northampton. Trigger yeah. warning for yeah. Northampton. Trigger <laughs> warning for Northampton, definitely. I kind of want to go there, but I feel like if I go there, I'd just be like, this is like every other British town. Yeah. <laughs> In the, Where know. the fuck is Alan Moore? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, no other housekeeping. Uh, I will say, Dan, really enjoyed these last episodes. Uh, well done to us, I think. Um, I've had a blast. Really looking forward to doing some more. That's really great. Thank you, Jack. It's also a pleasure for me. Yes. Absolutely. You've been listening to Auxiliary Statements. I'm Dan. And I am Jack. See you next time. <laughs> the music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.